0: We are continuing with our study in the Old Testament. Does anybody still need a handout? We have uh, a Pentateuch and a Genesis handout today. And for those who were not here last week uh, and may need an Old Testament introduction handout, there are still a couple, a few copies left. Anybody need last week's handout? There you go. Anybody else? All right, there you go. You're welcome. Anybody else? Last one, last call. There you go. Thanks. You're welcome. Okay, so we're looking at the Pentateuch as a whole tonight, and uh, just hopefully, my thought is that that will take about half of our time, and then we'll spend the second half of our time getting into the Book of Genesis. I may be wrong in my prediction of how time will go, but uh, that's totally fine if I am. Before we do that, I want to come back to a question that was raised last week: question of Theophanes and Christophanes. And uh, I think it's good to address these questions. I want this to be a time where we really do study and learn. And so uh, one of the questions was, what is a Christophany? And then we continued with uh, discussing a little bit about what's the significance and what are considered Christophanies. So the question I want to ask is, well, a theophany, first of all, is the appearance of God. A Christophany is the appearance of Christ. So let me ask you this. Can anyone see the Father? No, yes. no, you cannot see the father. What, what are you thinking, Eric? Because there is kind of a yes to that. Yeah, through Christ. Th- that's it, right? So if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the father. That's pretty clear in the new Testament. Jesus is the, what does Paul call him? Image of the invisible God. So if we're going to see God, if God is going to appear to his people, he's going to do it by the second person of the Trinity. So even the cloud, as we discussed last week, the cloud, that was Jesus leading his people. Jude even tells us, you may, have men- you may have seen it mentioned in our passage this morning. Jude tells us that Jesus is the one who led the people of Israel uh, in the Exodus into the wilderness. Jesus is the one um, who did that. That was God appearing. Now, um, the, the, there is this specific being, the angel of the Lord, Y'all have heard this angel of the Lord often called um, worthy, worthy of worship, identified with God himself. Uh, Jacob wrestled with God. So um, when, when we get to descriptions like that, we have to assume this is a Christophany. This is the second person of the Trinity, God showing himself by the second person of the Trinity. Now, now what's different between that and Jesus's permanent incarnation Only when Christ became flesh in Bethlehem did the world witness the ultimate theophany, the ultimate appearance of God, the image of the invisible God. Uh, Not that the others are uh, bad or false or inaccurate, but this Jesus Christ incarnate from Nazareth, um, He is the one by whom we see most clearly who God is and what He has done. Uh, I I found an article here, which is what I keep glancing down at by uh, Barry Cooper on Ligonier uh, called Theophany and Christophany. Uh, So that's one that I I read through. And there's there's another one here that I I dug into. But um, you see lots of instances of God interacting and appearing and showing up to His people. Why in the world do we have Theophanies and Christophanies in the Old Testament? Because God wants to make Himself known to His people. God says, I am... With you. I will be your God and you will be my people. This is Emmanuel, God with us. Here's how Barry Cooper closes it. He says, Well, first of all, uh, before we get to the closing, he says, um, Among other things, it shows quite tangibly the disposition of God towards us. Though he is the invisible God, in Christ he does not hide from us. He wants to be known by us, to be seen, to be interacted with, even wrestled with. Throughout Scripture, God makes His people a stunning promise. I will make my dwelling among you and walk among you, just as Christ once walked in Eden. Theophanies show that the heart of God is to be physically, invisibly, and inseparably present with His people. And here's the conclusion. The Christ, who in the Old Testament appeared in an always visible pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, and led His people through the wilderness, and we are told did not depart from them, Is the same Christ who says in the New Testament, I am with you always. So that is our God, and that's why he showed up in the Old Testament. Thoughts, questions about that? Yes? So, the the priest most specifically is talking to God. Is that a manifestation of the Father? Or would that be. Hmm. I, I wish I were an expert and I always had really good, just quick answers for all your questions. This might be one of those where I have to go back. Can you can you give insight on that one? The rock? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, so the back of the goodness. The rock was Christ. Not that rock, but another rock. So I think Christ was appearing in the Old Testament. I think it's still through there. So I think they saw the pre incarnate Christ walking. Moses. No, that's that's great. And then, how would you answer the question of who's speaking on Mount Sinai? I think the voice of God can come, we see mm-hmm. when Jesus was baptized. Mm-hmm. Or, mm-hmm. So, yeah. But sees. Yeah. That's why I uh, paid Pastor Wright to come tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you're with us. Okay, so hopefully that brings a little bit of closure. Maybe, really, all that does is it makes you want to know more about it. Um, but I can give you some resources if you'd like it. Let's look at the Pentateuch. You'll remember last week we uh, started with the Table of Contents. Now, I'm not asking you to turn there again, but you you know the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, those are five. Penta means five. So this is the Pentateuch, the five books. That's That's what we've got here. <clears throat> that's what we're going to be spending the next five weeks on. You'll see there at the bottom of the handout a timeline that kind of gives you the Old Testament timeline. The Pentateuch covers from even before the timeline begins here up through the exodus in the wilderness in the book of Deuteronomy. So that would go uh, right there until um, before the time of the judges. So the exodus and the conquest. So we're really looking at the first third or so uh, of this timeline, plus what comes before. So that's, that's just kind of giving you an idea of what the Pentateuch covers. So you see in the box on the top left, the major storylines, creation, fall, the antediluvian and judgment time, that's uh, the flood and Babel, that's Genesis 4 through 11, the patriarchs in Genesis 12 through 50, and then the Exodus and the wilderness. Um, so that's Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now Moses authored the Pentateuch. It's important for us to think for a moment about where he was and what was happening at the time that he's writing. So it's not like he was sitting in an office in Jerusalem writing these books. He had just led the Israelites out of bondage, out of slavery. He had just witnessed the Red Sea being held back into walls of water with dry land. And he had just led these people into the wilderness And here these people are saying, they start grumbling after some time. Like, what are you doing to us? It would have been better for us to to stay slaves back in Egypt. And Moses is reminding them who they are by reminding them who their God is. Here's your God. And he begins Genesis with a story of God's creating power. And he continues to show God's covenant love that he has set upon his people and reminds them the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And and he's telling them, here is your history and your relationship to your God. This is where we come from, in other words. Now Moses, I'm not saying it's impossible for him to have finished the Pentateuch, but it's very unlikely that he actually wrote the story that describes how he died. Uh, So you get to the end of Deuteronomy, it's not that God couldn't have given him a special revelation or prophecy on how he was going to die and write it as such, but it's most likely that Joshua, or one of those who came after, completed those books for him, um, perhaps compiled them, uh, having been taught by Moses for so much time. Another name for the Pentateuch is the Book of Moses, or the Law, or the Torah. Thoughts on just this really quick intro before we get into these other notes? Okay, let's talk about really the other notes for me uh, as I was putting this together was a reminder of how important the Pentateuch is in the whole Old Testament. We, We don't understand the Bible without the Pentateuch. We don't have the story of creation and redemption and and fall creation and fall and redemption. If we don't have Genesis, we don't know what it means to be in covenant relationship with God without Genesis. And so, uh, and then Deuteronomy is just a beautiful, um, Moses's theological summary in many senses of, of what he had experienced. They're really rich and beautiful books. So, um, we have to remember these were the main scriptures for Israel for much of the old Testament period. So when they talk about the scriptures, when they talk about the law, they're talking about the Pentateuch, those books that Moses wrote, (coughs) During the time of the kingdom, so you look down at the timeline. This is uh, around, I think, 1050 is about the beginning of uh, the Israelite kingdom, and it continues until the exile. During the time of the kingdom, God required each king to write his own copy of the law when he came to the throne and required him to read it daily. Listen to this from Deuteronomy 17. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him and he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." That's a beautiful description of the requirement of these kings to stay rooted in God's law, to stay rooted in the Pentateuch. But oh, how miserably those kings failed. Not one good king in the northern kingdom and maybe a couple in the southern kingdom. One of them being King Josiah. So let's uh, look here. It's important. I think it's really interesting, at least, to note that his reform, where he, he reformed the nation of Israel, it was sparked because they found the Pentateuch. First of all, it's sad that they had to find it. But it is good that, by God's grace, they found the Pentateuch. And here's a, a description of that from 2 Kings. It says, And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And King Josiah read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. That's a beautiful story covenant renewal, that God would take his people back after that kind of rebellion. But he is true to his word. And hopefully we'll get into that covenant a little bit today, if not the next Sunday. And then King David delights in the law. Law to us is such a negative term. But law, the law of God is such a life-giving word to David and to those in the Old Testament and to us today, those who read it as God's word for his people. David says in so many places, I I think if you read Psalm 119, there are only a handful of verses that don't mention the law or the precepts of God. The rest of them are just talking about how wonderful His commandments are. But in this one in particular, Psalm 19, not 119, in Psalm 19, he says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. There is great life to be found in the Pentateuch in God's word. Hopefully this timeline here at the bottom and the maps on the other side will be helpful tools for us as we go through these books. You can reference back to them. I won't give you color copies every week. Uh, so hang on to these. Let's just look briefly at these two. So uh, the the travels of Abraham on the left started over there on the eastern end of the Babylonia region in Ur. You can see that red dotted line. Now there's there's this uh, this region that stretches from Babylonia and then it goes northwest up. Uh, to Assyria and Mari, and then it curves and then comes back down along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. That region is called the Fertile Crescent. That's where most of the Old Testament um, events happen. It's in this Fertile Crescent, from Abraham coming from that east side over there, and Ur down into uh, Canaan over towards Shechem, and uh, Shechem then very close to where the Israelites ended back up in in Jerusalem, the city of David. And then Egypt also, a very important uh, power in this world, uh, the ancient Near Eastern world. That's just a really brief sketch for you. Now on the right here you see the world of the Exodus. This is the Sinai Peninsula, which you see on the bottom of the other map. It's kind of blown up here. You see the Israelites, this is, now, there are three possible routes of the Exodus, uh, maybe four, on this map. It's difficult to pin down exactly what stretch of water was split for the Israelites to pass through. The traditional site is Mount Sinai there on the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula. That's traditional location, it's called Mount Sinai, uh, and you can see that it's blown up in a little box there. Now, there are uh, theories and archaeological support for the fact, the fact that maybe, not the fact, for the theory that maybe uh, Mount Sinai was actually just a little bit east of there across the other leg of the Red Sea in Midian. Uh, they, they, we could get into specific details and archaeological discoveries that, that support that, but there in Midian, uh, modern-day Saudi Arabia uh, is another potential site. So those are just... Just some some theories, just some really some context is what I'm trying to give you before we get into this world of uh, the the Pentateuch. Thoughts, questions on those resources, on those those things. Okay, let's see if we can do a brief introduction to Genesis. What's that? Yeah, it's just fifty chapters. Genesis. this book i i don't feel like i've even begun to scratch the surface of the depths of the book of genesis Um, but i will i'll remind you again the resources i'm using are matt bradley and his series that he taught through the old testament uh, down at All Saints Prez in Nashville. He has very helpful resources online. I've been using those. And also, this book by, edited by Miles Van Pelt. <clears throat> it's called A Biblical Theological Introduction to the Old Testament. This is the Gospel Promise. That's the subtitle. So I think that's a great thing for us to keep in mind. You'll remember last week we talked about the fact that the Old Testament's focused theological center is Jesus because the gospel is promised in the Old Testament, and it is set to anticipate Jesus. So, uh, And, and he's, we see many truths about him in the Old Testament. I highly recommend this book by Van Pelt if you are interested in learning what I'm learning as I go through preparing these lessons. Uh, the chapter on Genesis is put together by uh, a scholar named John Currid. So if I quote uh, MVP, Miles Van Pelt, uh, who edited this book I am quoting specifically in Genesis John Currid Genesis The word alone means in the beginning which as you know is the beginning of Genesis So the Genesis of Genesis is Genesis It is a book about beginnings beginnings of the universe time space humanity sin redemption and Israel Lots of very important biblical themes begin right here in the book of Genesis. Other ancient Near Eastern cultures believed in creator gods with limited power and they would fight each other and slay one another and create the universe out of the watery body of the other God. Yet here in the book of Genesis, there is one God with complete control, the God of the Hebrews who spoke by the word of his power seemingly effortlessly to bring this full plan with full control and intentional direction to his creation. The God of the Hebrews is very different than the other ancient Near Eastern gods and their cultures whose gods simply were, um, should I say, glorified humans with all kinds of uh, flaws. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is very different. The God, the creator God, has full power. Now, Moses is the author. You have potentially heard of this thing called the documentary hypothesis. For some reason, it continues to be taught and upheld. It is a really um, tenuous theory about how Moses's authorship really historically came together. People who are going to do source criticism, textual criticism, they say, well, if you look at uh, these four different sources, one they call J, one they call E, one they call, they call P, one they call D, um, these sources use different names for God, and so therefore they assume they must have been written by different people at different times, and then somebody at the end smashed them all together. I don't know why that continues to be taught, because there are lots of holes in it, and there are lots of um, much stronger understandings to how to read these, these books. And, uh, so I just mention it here. And so I think all you need to know about this theory is what's in parentheses right there. It has crumbled. It's really not a worthwhile, uh, theory. So the way we're going to read it is this is the authorship of God, uh, of, of God, through Moses, by the Holy Spirit, who's speaking uh, through Moses and through whomever finished uh, the the Pentateuch. And we're going to read it in what's called a literary approach. We're not limited to the literary approach, but what the literary approach does is it helps us focus on the book as a complete unit. Rather than looking at this text that that seems really, um, Genesis 38, for example, Judah and Tamar seems really bizarre. A lot of the JEDP documentary hypothesis people say, well, it obviously didn't belong here. It was just added in later. They come with that skepticism and the presupposition that it doesn't belong. Whereas when we come to it with a literary analysis, we come and say, we assume it was put here intentionally. And so let's figure out how it's connected. And when you come to it that way, rather than letting little confusing things define how you view the text, what you're doing is you're submitting your mind to what the text is actually saying and teaching you. And when you dig in specifically to Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38, you see it's actually masterfully woven and thematically connected on both sides. So the whole theory that it doesn't belong is, is entirely external and imposed. Uh, and I would say is lazy scholarship. So we read Genesis in its canonical form, and it includes numerous genres, like genealogy, poetry, prayer, and so forth, but the predominant genre in Genesis is narrative. So we're going to find a lot of uh, stories, just relaying things that have happened. I have a note here to look at uh, um Chapter And it it really is talking specifically about Genesis 38 and Judah and Tamar. So, as I said, the critical scholars will come and say there's no connection between Genesis 38. Um, One commentator writes specifically, Every attentive reader can see the story of Judah and Tamar has no connection at all with a strictly organized Joseph story at whose beginning it is now inserted. So very blunt, very clearly saying it doesn't belong here. But if we look at it and try to understand why God had preserved, why God has preserved His um, His canon to be as it is, why God has put uh, Genesis these stories in Genesis together like this, we start to see, um, as I mentioned a minute ago, it's masterfully and artistically woven into the context of that story. Here are a few examples. Joseph, so this is in the middle of the Joseph narrative, you get the story of Judah and Tamar. Joseph is separated from his brothers by going down to Egypt, so Judah separates from his brothers by going down to marry a Canaanite woman. There's a a language connection, going down. Jacob is forced to mourn for a supposed death of his son, and Judah is forced to mourn for the actual death of his two sons. So going down and now mourning are two connections. Judah tricks Jacob, so Tamar in poetic justice tricks Judah. So there are just a few examples. And then we can also see on the other end of it, uh, the subsequent account, you see the story of Potiphar's wife. And so there's this, uh, understand, this um, theme of uh, sexual promiscuity. So while Judah marries a Canaanite, and after his wife's death he has sexual relations with a woman he thinks is a prostitute, then you have Joseph. We're in the middle of the story of Joseph. Now we see he, on the contrary, does not fall victim to sexual temptation so it's really placed there to highlight the redemptive nature of joseph's story to show his character so that's just one example um and there are many more we could get into but i thought that would be a helpful one just so that you know the value and i really want to emphasize this because as we come to text we're coming we're submitting to the scriptures letting them speak to us so uh, that's just one example of why it's important for us to do that rather than to come at it to dissect it (laughs) We good on that? All right. Let's let's get into the structure and outline, and then we'll stop uh, after that. So, the structure and outline of the book. There are three major sections in the book of Genesis. There's creation, there's the primeval history of the world from Adam to Abraham, and then there's the history of the patriarchs. The history of the patriarchs is the largest. It runs... um, Basically, Genesis 12 through 50, through the end of the book. Creation is short. Now, some of you who are looking at this saying, wait, why did you divide Genesis 1 and Genesis 2? Why is Genesis 1 in the creation section, and why is this the primeval history of the world from Adam to Abraham in the second uh, section of the book? Um, that's because of this thing called the Toledote. Okay, Toledote. Anybody heard of that before? You've heard of it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what did you say? Uh, what doesn't I've count? Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. R.U.S. Summer Conference. There you go. You heard of it there. The Toledote is a Hebrew word. Eleven times Genesis is punctuated with the phrase, the generations of. That is the Toledote. And it begins, it's really kind of a pause and restart, introducing the next, the next narrative section of the book. And it's not at all saying that these things aren't connected. Absolutely, they're connected and put together in that order for a specific reason. But Genesis 2.4 starts with a toledot. Here are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And that, that uh, pattern continues throughout the book 11 times. So it's not to say that Genesis 1 and 2 uh, don't speak to each other, but it seems that Genesis 1 was likely a, um, a verbal tradition, an oral tradition that Moses recorded. And then he began uh, recording as he did the rest of the book in Genesis 2-4 with the generations of the heavens and the earth. Then there's the generations of the Toledot of Adam and then Noah in chapter 6, Noah's sons in chapter 10, Shem specifically in chapter 11, Terah chapter 11, Ishmael 25, Isaac 25, Esau 36, and Jacob 37. Those uh, do not necessarily create the overall flow of the book, but they they are pauses, kind of punctuation uh, from narrative to narrative uh, throughout. Questions, thoughts? So if you see, uh, if you have your Bibles open, Genesis 2, uh, chapter chapter 2, verses, verse 4 says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. That's, that's the Toledote. And then you could flip over just a couple chapters uh, to chapter 5. And you see chapter 5, verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And then you could continue through chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. So that's kind of the... Here you see the pattern through the book. Now, if, you just, if we want to look at it just in terms of um, the events that happen, let me, this is a loaded structure and outline of the major events. Genesis 1 and 2 cover creation. So if we're looking at the events that are happening, Genesis 1 and 2 cover creation. Um, the covenant of works in particular is established there in these chapters. Genesis 3 uh, is the fall. This is the fall of man into sin. And then you see, even within that, in chapter 3, verse 15, the proto evangelion, the first gospel. Redemption is promised. The covenant of grace begins immediately after man has fallen. But then you see, the darkness of humanity, Genesis four and five, Cain, Abel, Seth, Genesis six through 10, Noah and the flood, Genesis 11, the genealogy of Abraham, Genesis 12 through 25, Abraham and Sarah. And within that, you see the call of Abraham, the covenant with Abraham, Abraham circumcised, the sacrifice of Isaac, a lot of big stories. And I'm putting these in here just so that you know some of the content of this book. Uh, We talk about how bad the biblical illiteracy is in our generations. Well, this is hopefully helping us see, oh, this is all here in this book. It's good to know so that we are literate when it comes to knowing what is where in our Bibles. Genesis 21 through 35 is Isaac and Rebekah. Rebecca, now you notice there's some overlap here. The Abraham and Sarah section, those chapters actually overlap with the Isaac and Rebekah chapters. And same with the next, uh, Jacob and his family are Genesis 25 through 49. You see Judah and Tamar there in 38. You see Joseph and his brothers in 37 through 50. And then you see uh, Genesis 49. I tacked this one on. Jacob blesses his sons. That's a crucial passage, especially because we see the promises to the line of Judah and how Jesus then becomes a fulfillment of those promises. We have scratched the surface. Uh, next week, we will get into specifically how creation, how Genesis 1-3 through 3 is a microcosm of the whole Bible. We'll get into the covenants a little bit, God's patience, the Abrahamic covenant in particular, uh, some themes, the seed and posterity theme, family and inheritance covenant, and then we're going to look at how you see Christ in the book of Genesis. It's, look at that list. It's a long list. It's a great list. And how Genesis is the groundwork for uh, understanding the rest of Scripture. No more questions, no more thoughts. Let me pray and then we'll sing one last song. Gracious God, we thank You that You've given us Your Word. We thank You that You have so masterfully woven it together over so many hundreds, even thousands of years. Would we be students? Would you help us to uh, find your word to be full of life? Would we come to it regularly and drink? Would we see Jesus Christ in it? Would he be our everything? Would he be the one that we would be willing to give our lives for as he has done for us? Would he be our everything? Thank you for the, those who are here with us tonight. Would you bless us as we go from this place As we close this day of yours, would we do it to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.